Okay, so we are in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, We're going to pray, and then we'll read our passage. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that as your word goes out today, Lord, that it would plant deeply in our hearts, Lord, that it would take root, that we would understand what it says, what was meant in the context. Lord, may your spirit illuminate the meaning of this text. Uh, May it grow in our hearts. May we truly have understanding. May we adjust our lives um, to walk with you, Lord, that we would have a deep passion for you, that our love for you would abound. Uh, We're thankful, Lord, for how you um, move in people's lives. We thank you that you meet each person where they are, um, that you sort of approach each of us, Lord, as we need to be approached. Um, You know us. You're our creator. And so, Lord, we pray um, that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, I didn't read the whole passage. Uh, The first half, this is what happened. The second half, Jesus is going to explain it. Um, But we'll sort of slowly work our way into that. Chapter 13 verse 1, this, this marks a, a significant shift in the whole of the gospel of Matthew. Um, chapter 12, the, the, the hostility of the Pharisees, the religious leaders towards Jesus, had sort of um, come to a crescendo. They, they, uh, many scholars who read and study and outline Matthew say that Matthew chapter 12 sort of marks the official rejection of Israel of their Messiah. Uh, Up to that point, Jesus had spoken plainly. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount was very directed, very pointed, very clear to understand. Maybe a little bit more difficult to apply, but it was clear. He was speaking to everybody. Uh, Chapter 13, his teaching style adjusts. He begins speaking in parables, which we'll look at today. Um, He's adjusted... um, how he's um, teaching to the crowds. Um, This continues sort of all the way through chapter 16. And at that time, Jesus begins to sort of foretell of his death. Um, So this is a a, a major shift. At the end of chapter 12, uh, just last week, what we looked at is Jesus had sort of broken up the people of Israel into two different categories. To the one, the religious leaders, the the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, he said, 
they were like a man who is demon-possessed. The demon basically was cast out. They cleaned themselves up externally. They were going through all the motions of religion, but they, they didn't come to know Christ. They didn't know God, that they didn't have God within them. And so the demon who had gone out came back and said, hey, man, the place is cleaned up. This looks great. I'm going to go get seven more buddies, and I'm going to move in. And the condition of the man was uh, worse uh, at the end than it was in the beginning. Uh, externally, it was filled with religion. Externally, um, they held all of the power in Israel. But Jesus referred to them as a, 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 a wicked and adulterous generation. Now to the second group, to his disciples who followed him, he said that these were his family, those who followed him, who knew him, who walked with him. He would teach them. And so we come to verse 1, and it says, That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Many have suggested that this is a sort of the line of demarcation, that he, he went out of the house, but, but, but in some ways they say, well, this kind of goes back to chapter 10, verse 6. Remember, Jesus had sent out the disciples two by two, and they were to go to the house of Israel. And so some have suggested that this is going out of the house. It's sort of, um, while it might not literally meet, like say, oh, he's leaving the house and going there, but it sort of, sh- it, it sort of explains the tone. He's no longer teaching in the synagogue. He's, he's out. He's sitting by the sea. Large crowds um, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and he sat down and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. This is a beautiful scene. Uh, they're on the Sea of Galilee on the shoreline. These huge crowds come. Jesus sees the crowds kind of pressing in on him. And so he, like they, there's a boat dock there. I don't know if he waded out in the water, but there's the image of this was the bow of a boat. He basically sat on the bow of the boat, feet kind of dangling. And then if you were the crowd, you'd all have to be standing. Uh, that, that, that would be a, I don't know if I could teach sitting down, but that's how they, they, they refer to that. But, but it'd be different. Some have suggested that this would be a good way to keep people awake during your message if they had to stand up. But I have experience with sleeping students, and people will fall asleep standing up. Um, And so there he is. Uh, There's this huge crowd. He's sitting on the boat. They're gathered around acoustically. This was genius. They could hear him with the water behind his back. And he's a masterful teacher. This would have been a delight to listen to. We're told in other places in in the Gospels, that he, he taught like no other person, that he had authority. Um, he was pleasing to listen to, and so he taught. And in verse 3, we see, And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. Now, before we get into the parable, we, we see the first part. He spoke many things in, to them in parables. Up to this point in Matthew, there's been absolutely zero parables told. None, zero, not at all. In chapter 13, uh, there's seven parables in this chapter. They just come back to back to back to back. And the question is, is what is a parable? Some have described a parable as an as a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Um, a parable can be described as a proverb. In fact, if you take the Greek word for, for proverb and you search for it in the Hebrew, I said proverb parable, in Hebrew, I bet you can guess now I gave it away, the punchline. It, a, a, a parable in the Hebrew is actually a proverb. So there's a whole book of, of parables, the, the book of Proverbs. These are, um, it, it can be defined as a proverb, an enigma, a riddle, a taunt, a simile, or an allegorical story. In every case, the common, denomina- common denominator is to use 
the use of a concrete analogy to illuminate an, an obscure or abstract thought. And the whole point of them is to cause the listener to think. God wants us to think. God wants us to ponder. I love how Jesus taught. If you examine his teaching, people would ask him a question, and often he wouldn't just give the answer. He would respond to them with a question. He would sort of force them to think through the implications and the things so that they would have a, a, a better grasp of what he was conveying to them. And so we see, and he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, as he sowed some seeds fell beside the road, and birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? So the story sort of, the, the picture is, is that he taught on the boat, they ended, they went away to another location, and the parables sort of approached him, or the parables, the, the disciples approached him about the parables. And so simply when he's on the boat, what does he say? He's speaking to an uh, agrarian culture. These, every one of them knew about farming. They knew about uh, how you would plant things, how you would grow food, even a fisherman, because everything was done so locally. It was something that they participated in as a community. This is before the age of John Deere and uh, Peter, not Peterbilt. Well, before Peterbilt, of course, but Peterbilt's not used for farming. But what's that other one? Caterpillar, the Caterpillar. Um, all of these tools for farming, you, you drive down coal grade road, and you see now that they've planted the seeds, and there's nice, even rows. Well, that's not how they did it back then. Back then, it was like this picture of this guy behind me. They'd have a, a bag of seed, and they'd simply go over the land, and they'd just sort of scatter over the soil. And then the soil would produce, this, where it was good soil, the, the seeds would produce. And he simply says, there's four different types of soil. Uh, I don't know why they call it the parable of the sower. Uh, probably because Jesus says that's what it is in verse 18. But, it, but it's all the same seed. It's all the same sower. The issue is the soil. There's different soils. And so we have, um, there's some seed, Jesus says, that falls on the side of the road. After it goes on the side of the road, the birds come down and eat the seed. Uh, some fell into rocky places. Now, this rocky places, this um, would be a rocky sort of, uh, there'd be a rock sheet and then maybe a couple inches of soil. I think of, for us, we have a lot of that clay dirt. It's either D and G or you have clay. And I failed a couple times planting where it's like, okay, I have a big clay soil. And what I do is I just go down to Home Depot and I buy a bag of soil and I just sort of throw the soil on top of the clay and my plants never turn out that way. That's sort of what he's describing. He says there's quick growth and then there's death. Then he says others are thrown into thorny places. The seeds go in. There's also thorns or weeds. Both grow up together and, and those seeds get choked out by the thorns because they're way more effective in harvesting the, the nutrients from the soil than the seeds that you planted. Then he says that there's good soil and seeds that go into good soil have a good return. And he says he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he moves on. It's like, if I was there, I'd be like, Jesus, we're all kind of farmers here. What, there's no sort of explanation. He just says sort of some, 
Like if he was having a, a seminar down at Grand Jettos about planting so seeds, this would be a great lesson to go to. And he ends. There, it, it, there, there doesn't seem to be anything significant. This is basic uh, planting 101. These are truths that if you throw seeds on different types of soil, this is how they're going to turn out. So plant your seeds in good soil sort of thing. Um, by their response in verse 10, we read, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? This is suddenly a very new teaching. The disciples were aware. Something about Jesus' style changed. Before he was so clear. Now it's not as clear. He's breaking the rules of teaching. See, when you teach, you're supposed to, to, to teach to the lowest common denominator. Make sure that everybody understands what you're saying. If, if, if they don't understand, you need to go, go back and rehash it and make it clear to them so that they understand. And the disciples come to him and say, why are you speaking in parables? It, it's hard to understand. It doesn't make any sense. You just taught a whole lesson about planting seeds, which everybody already knows. And so Jesus is going to respond to them in two ways. Before he uh, explains to them the situation about the parable of the sower, which we'll get to in verse 18. He's going to explain to them basically two reasons that he uses parables, or he's beginning to use parables. Um, he, he's, he's going to share with them that basically the parable... To those who aren't listening, who those aren't hearing, it, it's a way to shield the message. So it conceals his message to those who could care less about the message. And on the other hand, or the other side of the coin, to those who care, to those who are seeking him, those who he considers his family, the parable actually reveals a great spiritual truth to them. And so now that they've rejected, or the, the nation of Israel in large part has rejected their Messiah, Jesus' style has shifted. And so in verse 11, we read this. Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. And so as he begins to explain the use of the parables and why he's doing it, if you were to go through this section, verses 11 through uh, 17, you'll see that there are two groups the one group is to you. Those are um, those that he's identified as his family. Those are the ones who have followed after Jesus. Those are the ones who are desiring to listen to his message. So he says, to you it has been granted to know. And then there's, but to them, there's this other category. But to them it has not been granted. So we see the category of the people who've rejected, the category of the people who have received. And he says, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Uh, if we were to go back a few chapters, we'd see that Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now he's speaking to them about the mysteries of the kingdom. Earlier this week, Joel and I sat down. It was fascinating to me. I was probably more distracting to him. Like as he's, he's getting ready because he's preaching the week after I get back from Israel. And so he's preaching. So he's already kind of preparing for chapter 16. And, and, and there... So now they've been given the mysteries of the kingdom, but by the time we get to the very end of chapter 16, Jesus tells them, but I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Sort of like that they're getting the keys to the car, like they're allowed to like drive it. And so the mysteries of the kingdom, this is a, a, the kingdom of God throughout Matthew is there. 
And I think that the mystery that they've, they're slowly starting to understand is that the mystery is that God came to deliver the kingdom in sort of the spiritual realm, not the physical realm at this time. Now, now the physical realm of the kingdom, Jesus will come and he'll reign and rule with an iron fist, that the kingdom will come literally, physically. But at this point, at this time of the rejection, that the kingdom has been ushered in through the hearts of the followers of the king. And it's a, it's a great mystery. And the people of Israel, they were under the reign of rule. They wanted the king to literally come to basically get them out from under the Roman fist. And so Jesus says, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it has not been granted. Verse 12, for whoever has to him more shall be given. So the first caveat, to those who are following, he says that you that have, that's this knowledge that's mentioned of verse 11, that they have knowledge of the, king, the mysteries of the kingdom. To those that have, more will be given to them. And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. So those that have rejected, even if they have a little bit of understanding of the mystery, it's going to be taken away from them. Therefore, I speak to them, those who have rejected, in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so he shields them from new information, and the parable does that. Those who have rejected the parable conceals the truth that Jesus is trying to convey. And in verse 14, he says, in their case, The prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, and he's going to read, he's going to, well, not read, I'm going to read, he's going to quote back from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. And this this whole section is really uh, fascinating. We probably lose track by the time we get to verse 10, but many of us will know Isaiah chapter 6, because this is where Isaiah has his big vision of God. And he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and he's terrified before God. And then by the whole end of God working with me, he says, here I am, send me. I'm willing to go, Lord. Wherever you want to send me, I'll go. He says, okay, Isaiah, I'm going to send you. But then what he tells Isaiah is this. You will keep on hearing but not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they shall scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. I only read half of it. So Isaiah is told in that passage, okay, I'm going to send you, but this is, these, this is the people that you're going out to. They have dull hearts. They will not perceive. They, they won't hear the message. Sort of discouraging. And then the second half of verse 15 is sort of, to me, there's some hope in the midst of this sort of um, prophecy that's being fulfilled by the rejection. Listen to what Jesus says here, or the quote of Isaiah it says, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. So right away there's some tension. I'm going to sort of allude to some tension that you guys might. If we go back to verse 11, we read this, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries. And so we see absolutely that that which we know about God, God has 
revealed it to us. God has worked in His sovereignty. He sort of softened our hearts. Um, to, to my dear, like, ex- like harder reformed brothers, they would say that well, you have nothing to do with your salvation. You have nothing to do with like taking a step. And I'm saying this in like total love. Like this isn't like I have dear. I like you guys don't need to know all everything that I'm thinking right now, so I'll stop. <clears throat> but but they'd say like, well, there's nothing that there's no part that you have in in, in playing out your coming to Christ or, or your responding to God, which I think that there's some truth that, that God clearly like, that God works, God enables us. He, he allows us to, to hear and understand more. But then I see the tension in the second, the second half of verse 15, which I'm just okay with tension. Because Jesus says in this verse, quoting from Isaiah, like to those who would reject, he says, otherwise, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their hearts and understand with their heart and return. And I would heal them. And so there's this sort of this inclination if somehow in the general revelation that God's given to them, if they would only somehow like take a step towards what God has laid before them, that then God would then take them the rest of the way. And so I'm not going to sit here with my little pea brain and try to like, I think both are true. We have an obligation to respond to God and yet we're told that God has done a whole bunch of groundwork and he sort of provides the way of salvation. There's truth in both and I don't, I don't need like absolute certainty in my little pea brain to sort of like one doesn't, I don't think that they both um, are mutually exclusive. They both can be true. That God in his sovereignty, he's revealed general revelation, are responding to what he's given. That's not a work on our part. That's not us doing anything. The guy who's drowning out in the ocean, that a guy throws a life ring to him, the guy who grabs on the life ring didn't save himself. Like, but there's tension. Like, God's clearly working, but from our perspective in our little world where, like, we just kind of see, we have to kind of initiate. And I, I see that when we respond, God follows up. And it's a beautiful hope. And he says, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it. To hear what you hear and did not hear it. Like Jesus is telling these 12, guys, all of Israel, the religious leaders, they are missing the most significant thing in human history. And here you are. You don't just have front row seats. You're able to see and touch and ask questions. Prophets of old and many righteous men long to get what you have, and yet you have it. Like, it's an amazing thing to sit in front row seats, to participate. You know, on Wednesday night back at Christmas time, you know, I took my family, or I didn't take my family. The girls were a little disappointed at Christmas time because I don't think they fully, like, understood what I was, like, getting but I saw that the old that river dance, those Irish dancers that are like I don't like I have no rhythm and skill, and I'm I'm like just fascinated. And then there's this drummer who like has like drums all over, and he's like doing this like the whole time. And they're like, so I'm more fascinated. I'm like, I wish I could get back by that drummer, and just how does he do it? And then he came out and has a little thing, and I told the kids, I'm like, look at he's wearing Vans, he's cool. Like I want to be a drummer, like I want to be just like that guy. Okay, what was I talking about? So we had, like, somehow I was able to get, like, if you buy them right on the edge, you can get very, very close for, for like, a fraction of the price. So we had the four-end seats, but we were, like, in the front row. And I'd seen it, like, many years ago from, like, the seats that were way up there. And it's just, like, you just see, like, the little people, and you're kind of watching the screen. 
But when you're down on the front row, like those people are like sweating, spitting on each other, like close because they're like out of apparently dancing's an exercise. I've been making fun of it for years, but apparently it's a workout from far away. It looks like they're still, but it looks like their hearts are going to like beat out of their chest. And they seem so young to me now, but that's a whole nother, like, they're like babies up there. Like, I don't I think I'm getting older. But so like to be there that close and to see, like, I felt like I got a, it was overwhelming. And this is what the disciples had with the Messiah, that the God came from heaven to earth and took on flesh. And the disciples walked with him, touched with him, were taught personally by him. And he says, guys, Prophets of old have longed for this day. Righteous men have longed for this day. And you're experiencing it. Guys, don't fail to see the splendor of what you're experiencing. The Pharisees had the Messiah right in their eyes and they missed it. They blew it. Huge lesson to us. Never think that you have Christianity so far, you know, figured out that, you know, and I'm not saying like the word of the God is the word of God. But we can go get, get so tied up in our traditions, in our religion, that we fail to miss what God's doing in our very midst. And so then Jesus says, hear then the parable of the sower. So now he's going to break down the parable of the sower to him. And if you turn with me over to, just really quick, if you turn with me to Mark chapter, chapter 4, verse 13. So just next to Matthew, Mark. And in Mark, who Mark doesn't really say a lot. We just on Wednesday nights went through Mark. I love it. Mark's like a German. Like I, He's just like... Just, he keeps it to the facts. He keeps the story moving. There's no, he doesn't get sidetracked. And yet in his conciseness, in his keeping the story, the main thing, look what he says in, on this story, dealing with verse, uh, Mark chapter four, verse 13. I got a little excited. I'm getting like, my words aren't able to keep up with my brain. He, uh, and he said to them, this is Jesus speaking dealing with the parable of the sower, where at the same place in the story, they'd approach him and say, Jesus, we don't understand the parable of the sower. And he says, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the other parables? And so when we, you can go back to Matthew. And so when Jesus begins to explain the parable of the sower, he tells them, and it's recorded over in Mark, that when he tells the parable of the sower, this, this the parable of the sower is sort of, it's the key to understanding of all the parables. This is critical. This one is super duper important. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road where the birds come and snatch it away. So the issue is we learn about the kingdom, that the, that the kingdom is, is sort of presented in word. I think that the word of God is super critical. It's important. It's the main staple of what we do here at a church, as, a, as a church. Um, understanding, listening, studying, reading, um, placing the word of God into our hearts. This is where we grow closer in understanding of the kingdom and our king, the Lord Jesus. And, and, and the, sort of the picture is that the sea is sort of scattered. And they just have no understanding. I um, I had a big um, like mile marker yesterday. Um, you know, for those who know, I've been sort of. I don't duck hunt at all. But but I now I'm like training my dog to go duck hunting. And and 
so we've been going out, the, we go out on Saturdays, he's been through this stuff, and, I, I, and I'm hanging out with all these guys who have like world-class dogs. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely crazy what they'll do. They'll bring the dog up, they shoot four different birds, and, and the dog goes one by one to get the, do- the birds and bring them back like the dog remembers. And then there's like two what they call blind retrieves. So these orange bumpers, dog orange thing, because dogs can't see orange, so they can't see it. They have no idea where it is. And the dog just takes off running. We'll turn around, look at the owner, and the owner will go that way. And so they're directing like these dogs up into the hills, and they come back with this bumper. It's like, that is so awesome. And I'm sitting around there yesterday, and the guy's like, is that your dog? No, that's not my dog. <laughs> My dog's like on the short bus. Like I, like I, and I remember going out there, like I, I bring the dog out there and it's like a retriever and, like, and it's like we throw a ball and the dog would like look at it. I'm like, it's like the lights are on but nobody's home. He's retriever. He won't even like. <laughs> and then the trainers that are there are so gifted and they're like, hey, we need to like, we can, you just got to give me these baby steps. So then we got him to like go get a bumper and yesterday was like the big day because, you know, a few weeks ago we went out there and we're like, after all these guys with like the high-end dogs get up there, and there I am with my like 1971 Pinto. It's like, all right, boy, like let's do this. And there's like a crowd of these people who are like 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 big-time duck hunters with real dogs and stuff. And and then I'm in the crowd. I was like so nervous because I'm gonna like fail. Like it's and and so then they do all the quacking. The bird launches. The dog runs like four weeks. Like it was like a month ago. The dog runs up there, sees the bird, and he's like, what's this? This is a dead duck. I'm not touching that. My putting that in my mouth, and he he like weighs off. I'm like, so I had to go down the hill, long way, pick up the bird, and try to like. And the dog's like, you're not. I'm not interested in that at all. But then this trainer like knows all this stuff to like kind of cultivate the dog's heart to kind of like bring it out. So yesterday he brought back four ducks, and I was like super stoked. And you're like, what does this have to do with the text? It has. I see that dog the first time, like this first person. Like, I don't know if you've ever met somebody who, who they could be a good person, they could be a bad person, they could be whatever, and you share about things of God, and it's like they look at you, but it's just like they had just waxed their car and water goes on, just rolls off. Like, I, like there's just no interest. There are guys I know at the police department who, ha- like, when I talk to them, like, I'm a chap, and it's like they have, abs- it's like they have, no clue, like, what it means to be a child, like, what I, like, at all. And, and I've tried to communicate them things, and it's just like, like, it's, I don't even understand. And I think that these are people that Jesus is describing here. Anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has not been sown in his heart. And this is the one whom the scene was sowed beside the road. And I think of this individual, like my dog, when I threw the, bo- the, the ball, and he's just like, okay. And see, on one hand, like you can become a super abusive person and say, look at those dogs, they're doing it, and you can try to beat the dog to do all the stuff, and they won't do it. But I think sometimes we do this with the gospel. And we think, oh, you should be able to respond to the gospel right now, make a decision. I presented all the facts to you, no, you you're looking at me like, I, you know, it's not making sense. I think the lesson here is like, well, maybe you need to like kind of slow down and like kind of like just kind of scrape the soil a little, like do something just to kind of get a little like something. I don't know. And maybe it's not possible. And I think that when Jesus tells about this parable, there's sort of two ways that we can look at it. I think first and foremost 
is Jesus is telling the disciples that we live in the age where we're sowing seeds. We have a responsibility to go forth and to to make the gospel, to make Christ known to the nations. Our job isn't to to save people. Our our job is to sow seeds. And some seeds will be sown and they'll they'll fall on the road and nothing will happen. And I don't think that means that we give up on the person, but it's like, well, we, we just need to understand that. And then I think on the other side of the coin, as we look at these four soils, I think it's critical for us to recognize the condition of our own heart. And so you can be walking with Christ, but our, but our hearts can grow hard. We can have areas that are hard. We can have areas that are good in our heart. And so I think that we can read this sort of as a practical application. And so the first group, they don't get it. Then we move on to verse 20. And he says, the one whom the seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no firm, firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And so here's the person. Um, they hear the gospel. They respond. They they seem to just flourish. Um, they seem to be passionate about the word, and then time goes by, and then that person falls away. The, the, the longer um, I've been a Christian, the, the more falling away I've seen where it's like, I thought that person was a believer, but they seem to, like, it's just like they, like, there's nothing now. And, and what do we, what do we do about this? And I think in America, there's, a, there's an exceptionally high percentage of, of fall away um, Billy Graham's publication, I forget the name of the publication, um, they wrote an article, and they're saying now, like in reflecting on Billy Graham's life in the Crusades, they believe that there's an 80 to 90% fall-away rate. People who responded to the gospel, and then as time went on, they, they walked away. So, so they're saying they believe of all of their Crusades, of all their stuff, of all of the people that, that came forward, only 10 to 20 people, 10 to 20 percent of the people are still like walking with the Lord. That that the seed actually took root. Um, it's an it's an interesting thing. Uh, in our culture, I I do think that in Christian culture, we really want to get a person to like, hey, I want to read Romans Road to you. I want to go over the what is it, the three spiritual laws or four spiritual laws? I feel like the four spiritual laws that we want to go through all of the steps and hey, pray this prayer with me. And then okay, they prayed the prayer. They're saved now. My four-year-old child prayed this prayer, so they're, they're a Christian. 20 years has gone by. There's absolutely no evidence, but we think, oh, they prayed the prayer. They're saved. They're saved. They're saved. And I'm not sure the answer of this, but, but there seems to be the seed goes in, quick growth, then it dies away. As soon as, as, soon as trials come, they sort of, they're like, I'm, 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 I'm done with this. Um, oh, what's his name? Ray Comfort. <clears throat> he does stuff with the way of the master, and he shares this this parachute illustration that I've told in my own life. He says if two people are given a, a parachute, and one's told, "Hey, listen, take, put this parachute on. Um, it'll make your flight really comfortable." And they go up in the air. Like after a while, they're like, "This isn't more comfortable. I'm going to take it off because it's not comfortable." The other person says, "You got to put this parachute on because you're jumping at thirty thousand feet, and it will save your life." Well, that person keeps the parachute on for different reasons. And I can attest to you that jumping out of a plane, I like it to be very, very uncomfortable because I don't want, well, I don't jump anymore. 
but I had fears of like, oh, I mean, the parachute's going to open, but I have like loose leg straps and I'm somehow going to slip out of it. Like I want it to be super tight, super uncomfortable because the parachute doesn't exist to make me comfortable. And I think a fancy uh, word, soteriology, that's our understanding of salvation. Christ is presented in our culture that if you just come to him, your life will get better. We use Christ sort of as a lucky rabbit's foot. That if you go through these motions and everything will get better. But that's not what the Bible depicts is why we come to Christ. The Bible tells us that our sin is terrible. That because of it, we deserve horrible, horrible, horrible wrath. And the wrath of God is coming towards those who are in their sins. But we're told that God so loved us that his son came, that if we flee to him, we'll be safe from the wrath of God. So we should grow closer to him. And so if, the, if our family disowns us, if our friends no longer like us, if our life gets harder, that's okay because I didn't come to Christ for my life to get better. I came to Christ because I was dead in my transgressions and sins. The wrath of God was coming towards me and there was hope in him. It changes everything. Um, Wesley, where, um, where the Methodist church sort of sprang from, which is like the Methodist church has changed a lot from where Wesley started with. West, Wesley was a great evangelist. And so if you read through his journals, um, he didn't really do like altar calls. But he had these huge responses of people, like gr- great revival happened. And in his journal, he's, like, he'd often say, I, I went to such and such place, and there seemed to be many that were moved by the message of God. But God only knows how moved they were. Like, he didn't put much stock in, like, people weeping and crying that night because, really, you need time to see how the person will really respond. And Jesus says that when these storms come, they're, they're washed away. I know that when I moved here and I started planted some trees and I, to, the, um, to the, um, the nursery guy, they said, well, do, how, do I wanna, how do I want to get these things? They said, well, you need to get the stakes up and you need to put, you need to put some, like, you know, some things to kind of secure the tree. But he's like, the deal is you don't want to so secure the tree that, that the tree can't feel the shock of the storm. Because when a storm comes and this tree starts moving around, that causes the tree to send its roots deeper into the soil so that ultimately it will be strong. But if you tie it up, the roots aren't formed to go deeper. And Jesus seems to say uh, to, to the one whom the seed goes into good soil, when storms come, when cancer comes, when the loss of a child comes, when some difficulty comes, it doesn't cause you to be uprooted. What it caused you to do is for, to send roots deeper into the soil that you would cling to Christ even deeper. But the one who came to Christ in this rocky soil uh, where they, they don't seem to have uh, responded correctly, these trials basically say, well, I came to Christ for my life to get better, and so if life, things aren't going better, I'm going to walk away. Um, Ted Turner, the, the media mogul, I don't know if you guys are familiar with him, uh, Turner Broadcasting, he was actually raised in a very staunch Christian home. Um, and then he, he, he obviously is not a believer, and he uh, turned from the faith. And he spoke at, um, I forget what group it is, but it's like a humanistic group. And he, he was saying that early on he had, um, he sort of, he said he got saved like seven or eight times as a child. And, but then his, his uh, sister developed lupus, and, and she ultimately died from lupus. 
And he said during this time, he prayed and prayed and prayed, and God didn't seem to respond. And when his sister died, he said, I'm done with God, and I, I moved away. Moved away from God. Not... And I think that this is what Jesus is addressing here. Okay, verse 22. And the one whom the seen was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Spurgeon, on his commentary on Matthew, he says this. He says, um, this class of hearers we know by personal acquaintance in this busy age. I think this is hilarious. Spurgeon lived during the 1500s. <laughs> and he says, this class of hearers we know by personal acquaintance in this busy age. Man, can you imagine going back to the 1500s and say, dude, Spurgeon, what would you say about our generation? He said, they hear the word, they are affected by the gospel, they take it as seed into their minds and it grows well for a season. But the heart cannot belong to two absorbing objects at the same time and therefore these men cannot long yield themselves up to the world and to Christ also. This is the, the concerns of the world, extracurricular activities, uh, whatever, hobbies, sports, things that... that consume us, that, that, that we give priority to. He, he goes on, Spurgeon, to illustrate this, this seed in a, in a very beautiful way. He says, you plant corn and the corn grows up, but then the weeds there. And so both are growing and the weeds are, are dominating and you, you can see the stalk of corn growing, but there is, there is a withered little tiny corn that's no longer able to develop and sort of paints the picture that these are believers who sort of walk the walk and profess, and, and, and well, they don't walk the walk, but they, they go through the motions. But there's no real fruit. They don't realize that they've been so withered by the cares of this world. And Jesus hears uh, the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the world, and they're suddenly, or choke out the word, and it, it goes back, it takes you back to the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you can't serve mammon and God at the same time. And this is like this, the, the busyness of life. To me, this is, this is something that to guard ourselves from. Like this is the one that always convicts me in the day when we have smartphones and everything at our, at our attention and yet we don't take the time to, to slow down and to, to prioritize and to ponder the things of God. I would encourage you what, to, to self-evaluate what things do you really value? If you were to put yourself up to a pop quiz, I would, you know, you could say um, you can evaluate your schedule. Where, where is your time spent? What does your checkbook say? Your heart is. Where does it say you're invested? Like it's so easy to observe and sort of critique others, but so difficult for us to critique ourselves and how we're doing in this busyness. The author of Hebrews in 12.1, I think he addresses the same thing. He says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. He doesn't say that sin is very difficult to get entangled with. He's like, let, let us lay aside sin which is so easy. It's so easy to get caught up in the things of this world without even recognizing it. And he, this author says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us Run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
He said, as you're chasing after Christ, as you're following after him, this world is going to throw bags and worries and concerns on you. And he says, get rid of it. Focus. Prioritize. And then finally, we see the good soil. And in verse 23, he says, and the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. And I think that this is like time tells, like this is, we see the seed, it takes time to see how it's developing and nurturing. I'm on a Spurgeon kick today, like I don't know why, but, the, but, but Spurgeon by like five years old, he, he was basically totally proficient and competent by the scriptures. He was like a prodigy. Uh, he, he could tell you, like, he understood the, the whole uh, of, uh, of the Bible. At like five, he was a world-famous preacher. He, he, uh, all people came to him at old age. But he tells the story of even though he was proficient, even though he'd made a profession, at like 12, 13 years old, he has memories of his mom at his bedside, weeping over him, praying uh, with tears flowing down her eyes on her son, even though he had all of this evidence of fruit in his life, Lord, save Spurgeon. Let him come to know you. Let him come to prioritize you. There was no like, oh, he's a little Spurgeon. He made profession when he was five years old, and so he's good to go. There's this intense that it takes time. Like, Lord, may there be good soil because we know that the seed can sprout up and you could have a short season, but you fade away. And so the bottom line is, how do we cultivate good soil in our own hearts? I think the, the, the first and most important thing is we all need to understand that we all start with bad soil. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Like none of us were issued good soil when we were born. We all have bad, terrible soil. We can work on the condition of our own soil. And I think that we're called to like scatter seed in other people's soil. I, I notice about soil here, we've had rain. For most of the year, it's like brown, right? Now Valley Center is starting to look beautiful because all this green stuff is like popping up. And where did those seeds come from? What, how did they get there? Well, the first thing we know is like, well, water started falling from the sky. And so with the application of water, it caused this increase. It caused the seeds to, to take root. And so I think there are things practically that we can do. First and foremost, Ephesians 1.13 says this, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the whole chapter, but towards the end, and just read the whole chapter on your own time. But the essence of it is basically it tells us that, that the spiritual man has the lens, has the the glasses, to see the mind of Christ, to understand the things of God. The, the, this, this, the worldly man doesn't have the spirit and therefore they just can't understand. And so the first part or first point of cultivating good soil is understanding who you are without Christ and then coming to Christ and accepting him as your Lord. When we receive Christ as our Savior, we're told that we're sealed by the spirit and now the spirit of God is within us that can guide us, direct us, cultivate up seal, uh, our soil, convict us of sin. Throughout the New Testament pages, we're warned, don't, don't, um, don't sear your conscience. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So we, 
weak and being rebellion to the Spirit as Christians. But the Word makes it clear that in order to cultivate good soil in our hearts, that we are to respond, to yield to the Spirit, to listen to Him, to confess sin as He convicts us of it, to be led by Him. The author of Hebrews again in Hebrews 3 verses 7 through 8 says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the days of the trial in the wilderness. Don't allow your heart to get hardened. This morning uh, in, in my like personal devotional reading, I, it just happened to be Proverbs 4.23 in the New Living Translation, which was fascinating to me, which I think is at the heart of this whole, um, th- this whole parable. And Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And so when I look at this soil, I need, or this parable of the soils, we need to understand that as Christians, our hearts, I think, can contain good and bad soil. And I think that we need to work on cultivating our heart. I think that's why it's so important to be in fellowship with one another. That's why it's important to be in the Word of God, to allow God to speak to us, that we should be communicating with God so that ultimately God does the work in our lives and brings forth the increase. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, as we look at the, uh, the parable of the sower, Lord, I see the Pharisees and scribes and the religious rulers of Israel, Lord, who had you right in their midst, and they completely missed what you were doing. And so, Father, I pray that each person here, Lord, um, that we would hear your word, that we would respond. Father, I pray that you would help us um, to assess the condition of our hearts. We all desire good soil, or at least I do. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would do a work in our hearts, Lord. May you show us, Lord, areas that are um, maybe contaminating the soil. Maybe we're have the worries of the world are choking us out in our life, and I pray that you would help us to see that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to prioritize, Lord, putting you first in our life. Uh, We're prone to wander. We're prone to get off course. And so, Lord, we need you desperately. Father, as we seek to sow seed to the world around us, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom. Lord, as we scatter it, as we're... uh, as we enter into conversations and relationships with people. Father, I pray that you would give us words, a loving, a loving heart, um, the wisdom of your spirit um, to help cultivate the soil of those that we have influence on, Lord, for the gospel. And Lord, we thank you that you are so loving, so kind, and so patient with us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.